Well, welcome to Scum of the Earth one more time. I'll be your pastor for the evening. We'll be flying at about 30,000 feet. If we miss our destination, it's only because I was asleep. But I'll never admit it. I will have been working somehow. Today marks the start of Advent. You know that because there's an Advent wreath at Scum, which most of you up here can't see, but it's down there. It's really pretty. All kind of green and pink and purplish. Advent is the season when we remember the coming of God into the world in the most unexpected of ways. It is a holy season, marking sacred time, the beginning of the church calendar, as opposed to ordinary time. Historically, it has always carried with it the theme of preparation. In the sacred time, we prepare ourselves to make him room. That's tough sledding these days. Our typical preparation for Christmas is a bumper-to-bumper on-ramp for the holiday superhighway. It has a kind of violence to it, spiritually and emotionally, if not physically. Ubiquitous Sorry, I can't read that one. <laughs> marketing, mind-numbing jingles, shameless insistence that we must consume more now than the rest of the year. And hurry, by all means, hurry to get it all done or you won't be merry. God rest ye merry gentlemen, most surely refer to those recovering from the holidays. This Advent guide is a countercultural attempt to slow us down and bring some spiritual intention to these four weeks preceding Christmas. In it, you will be invited to enter the story of the Nativity through the theme of the third way. May you find peace in his coming, may you find your way. Way to go. This is an Advent guide. There are four readings for each of the four Sundays before Christmas. And good friends of ours, Urban Sky, have published this. They cost us two fifty a piece, but we're going to let you have them for $2 each. So if you would like an Advent guide to follow along to kind of prepare your heart for the holidays, we'll be actually teaching the next four weeks uh, in accordance with this guide as well. So you can go back to the Scoop at Scum, and you can pick one up for a measly 2 bucks. I think it'll be great to uh, look over as you maybe sip a cup of coffee when you first get up in the morning or at night, you know, when you sit in front of your Christmas tree, when all is quiet and all is still. I don't know when that happens at your place, but I'll be talking this week about the need for a third way. I want you to think about a time when you've felt threatened. Maybe a person that you knew, Maybe it was a stranger that you didn't know. But think about a time when you have felt afraid for either your physical well-being or your emotional well-being, maybe your spiritual well-being. What kind of emotions went through you? What kind of conclusions did you come to as you were facing that threat? Psychologists tell us that normally... Human beings have one of two ways to respond to a perceived threat. The first way is to fight it. Fight. You sense danger, and so you arm yourself home late at night. It's two in the morning. You think all the doors and windows are locked, and you hear somebody 
creeping around downstairs in the kitchen or maybe out in the living room in the same floor. And so you grab your baseball bat or your ski pole or whatever you might have, and you go out there to meet the intruder. That's, that's one way to respond to those kind of things. The other way that we're told human beings like to respond to a perceived threat is by fleeing, flight. So fight is the first one. Flight is the second one. That's fairly self-explanatory. You hear somebody coming in, making a racket in your apartment, and so you duck out the back way because you don't want to face whomever it is. Now, this can happen, obviously, even with relationships and things like that. But people actually encounter these kinds of choices when they're Christmas shopping, right? You can, honestly, you can be one of those people who gets up at 6 in the morning to go down to Walmart and take your chances fighting with the crowds. You may be taking your life in your own hands, but you're a fighting kind of person in that instance, right? Or you could be like others who go, there is no way I'm going shopping on Black Friday. I'm staying home. I'm going to watch television. I'm going to watch football. I'm going to play a musical instrument. I'm going to do anything except go into that kind of retail feeding frenzy. So, fight or flight. Now, the interesting thing is, is as we begin the Advent season, we're looking for a third way. Is there a third way? You got a Bible, open up to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. If you don't have one, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. It'll be up here on the screen to my right. We're going to take this nice and slow. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Let me tell you a little bit about King Herod. King Herod was crazy. He was a tyrant. He was half Jewish, half Idumean, which means then he was not the legal nor the religious heir to the throne of Israel. You're supposed to come from the line of King David in order to be king of Israel, and he wasn't. And he knew it, and everybody else knew it. And that made him a little paranoid. Because he came to power by currying favor with the Roman government. We know how much the government was liked back then by the Jews. They liked the government even less than right-wing Republicans like our present government. That's how much they disliked the Romans. And they had good reason not to like them. King Herod would do anything to keep his throne secure. He had at least 10 wives, multiple sons from these 10 wives. He was known to not only kill off his sons who may be in line for the throne if he felt threatened, also he would kill their mothers, his wives. Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor at the time that King Herod was king, is said to have remarked, I'd rather be King Herod's pig than his son. He was actually making a pun in the original Greek because the word for 
pig and the word for son are just different by a couple letters. You kind of like if you would say, I'd rather be someone's hair, H-A-R-E, than his heir, H-E-I-R, that kind of thing, right? But in Greek, it came out to pig or the son. The reason being, you had a better chance of surviving if you were his pig. Because it was Jerusalem, you know, makes sense. Okay. Enough historical cultural background. We'll go on. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, the Bible calls these wise men or magi. The Christmas carol calls them kings. Three kings. Not little kings. That's a whole different sermon. But three kings. Now, they weren't kings. They were probably of some kind of nobility, but they were more wise counselors. Magi is kind of short for magician. They were astrologers and astronomers. The difference there being that astrologers look at the sky and tell you what's going to happen in the future or what happened in the past and have some kind of religious affiliation with the stars. Astronomers just kind of tell you, hey, this is the way the stars go. This is when we expect this to rise. And... But they were both. They were very learned men, very wise men. We, we think they came from somewhere around Babylon, which is about a 900-mile trek to Jerusalem. 900 miles. They might have had camels. They might not have had camels. There may have been three. I doubt it. There may have been 20. In any event, you don't go 900 miles in that age without sufficient protection. So imagine these dudes pulling into Jerusalem with an armed cohort from Babylon asking where the new king is. Can you imagine how Herod felt? Because they saw his star as it rose. Now, maybe you've watched the sky enough to know that during different seasons, different constellations appear, right? They, they look as if they're rising up on the horizon or descending down to the horizon. It's actually the earth rotating, right? But we all say that they rise or that they've set. I don't know how they knew this. It could have been that there was a certain constellation that represented the area of Palestine, the Jewish nation, and uh, a new star appeared. Whenever a new star appeared, they usually took that as a portent of some great event that would happen on the earth. So a new star meant there was a new king to be born, and it came up in the constellation that represented the Jews, and so we're guessing that there's a new king in that land. Now, this is the weird thing, that for a long time around the ancient world, there had been rumors that the next world ruler would come from the Jews. How did they get that? Well, I don't know what God might have done to prepare them for this kind of thing, 
But we know at least that there were prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah being the primary one, of this coming king, the servant king. We talked about that in our series in Isaiah. And so the Jews have been scattered all around the known world for a long, long time. So stories of this coming Messiah, this world ruler who is going to put everything to rights, was seeping out into the cultures all around, even in the Roman culture. I mean, even Babylonian culture, they're all saying, well, you know, there might be something to this. And then you kind of add that with some kind of forbidden knowledge from occultic practices. And the whole world at this time was expecting something to happen. The next verse does not take us by surprise. Verse 3, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this as was everyone in Jerusalem. Keyword, deeply. He was agitated. He was really, really, really upset. The crazy monarch is sensing a threat to his throne, and he's going berserko inside. He's really upset because... Maybe the ancient prophecies, after all, will come true. Think Lord of the Rings and how they're waiting for the one true king. Take that into the real world, times a hundred, and you're getting the idea of what a threat, just the information these guys are bringing is the people in power in Jerusalem. So, King Herod calls a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. This is the crazy thing. These priests and teachers of the law study the scriptures so much that they not only believe there was a king coming, They knew exactly where he was to be born. And the catalyst for this new beginning is these wise guys from the east. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, there were no CNN network news people at that time. There were no telephones or even telegraphs. There was no way that these Babylonian magi had any idea Herod was being anything but sincere. But you see, we already know the backstory. We know that he's really, really upset. We know that he's paranoid and getting more paranoid as he gets older. King Herod had been ruling from, I think, 37 BC at this point. Right now, we're at about probably around 6 BC or so, 6 to 4 BC. I'm not sure. You're going, wait a minute, Mike. That's true, what you're saying. Then 
Jesus was born B.C., not A.D. 1 or like I thought. Yeah, this is go-to-school time. We all think now that Jesus was born probably around 4 B.C., right around there, 4 to 6. How do we know that? Well, because we know when Herod died. He dies about two years after these dudes come to Jerusalem. You put a lot of stuff together, and you get Jesus being born B.C., 4 to 6 B.C. They didn't have that information back, you know, in the year 500 when they were doing the calendar like we do now. I hope that doesn't stumble on any of you. It's just the calendar, no big deal. I don't know if you knew this or not, but back in the Roman times, they didn't use our calendar. Did you know that? They had their own calendar. They were on year 570-something when all this was happening because they were going from, like, the birth of Rome. This is so much stuff you don't need to know. All right, after this interview... Verse 9, the wise men went their way, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. What kind of star is this? Excuse me. They saw a star rising over the horizon. And then somewhere in between, this star sprouts wings and then guides them not only to Bethlehem after they leave Jerusalem, but over the house where Jesus is. What the heck? I mean, I don't know. And this is where you go from astronomer to astrologer, I'm pretty sure, okay? And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking it had to be an angel. An angel disguises a star. We've always confused angels and stars, at least in this culture, for a long, long time. And angels are popping up everywhere in this story around Christmas time. And so I'm guessing it was an angel. You get a better guess, go right ahead. Because <laughs> something's changed. And they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. Stop right there. They entered the house. This is not the manger. This is not the stable with the manger. Jesus is not in swaddling clothes. His star rose on the horizon who knows how long ago. So he's probably maybe as old as two years at this point. The Greek word is very specific. It says house. The Greeks knew the difference between a house and a stable. They just did. They're that smart. And then it says child, not baby. In the Greek, it's the word for young child. So he was, you know, who knows? Maybe he was saying a few words. I don't know. Just so you know, when you go to the movies and they show the wise men coming just after the shepherds, totally 100% wrong. I mean, it looks great on our coffee tables to have the shepherds and the wise men, and then, you know, like maybe a foot away, you have the wise guys coming with their camels, right? And there's only three of them because that's all that can fit on our coffee table. So, just want you to know this stuff. This really wouldn't affect your life. It just would, you wouldn't appear stupid. All right. They opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold is obviously precious. 
in that era especially. Frankincense and myrrh are spices used for different things. I don't know that they had symbolic significance. They probably didn't, at least not back then. We've added that later, but they were expensive spices. Now, you didn't have supermarkets. You wanted tea, you had to go to China. All right? I mean, (laughs) this stuff is really pricey. And they give it to him because he's a king or a future king. This is probably why they had the armed guard. (laughs) You know, because you don't go 900 miles in the ancient world, robbers and brigands on the trade routes. I mean, you made sure that those kind of things were kept safe, which is why probably really it wouldn't fit on your coffee table if you were being historically accurate. You would need like a dining room table. When there's time to leave, verse 12, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Flee to Egypt with the child and mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Whenever angels appear in the Bible, they're always telling people to hurry up. Like, get up! Let's go! Move it! God's got a plan! Don't be late! Let's go! I mean, angels, I mean, it's like they come in the nick of time, and then they tell you, hurry up, get going. This is important. I'm just an observation. <laughs> it's like, I, I want to draw a distinction between, between biblical angels and the angels that are ornaments on our Christmas trees that look like beautiful women with hair washed in Pantene and are playing some kind of golden harp musical instrument. Normally, angels are giant spiritual warrior beings and when they, when they meet you, they start barking orders. And because they're so terrifying, you do what they say. Trying to paint the right picture here. So, this angel says, get up. And so I'm sure, like Joseph's getting up like that night. <laughs> he is gone. He is leaving. And you're going, man, how are we going to pay for this trip? Got to, you know, I, I got to buy, you know, Motel 6 or something with an extra room with a crib. And how am I going to eat along the way? I've got to, I mean, I mean, and you're going, oh, wait a minute. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So God, in his providence, provides for the Holy Family in their flight with these gifts. God doesn't waste a stroke. Isn't that great? Doesn't waste a stroke. Verse 14, that night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. Notice that it's not he left for Egypt with his son and his wife. The Bible is pretty clearly making a distinction here. This is not Joseph's son. Earlier, when the wise men came and they bowed before Jesus, they worshipped him. I just want to make a note. They weren't worshipping Mary. I just have to say that. They worshipped the child. And, and here, Joseph knows his place. He's a very, very key figure in the story, but he's not the main figure. The child is the main figure. So that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. Uh, It says a couple years. 
This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Just for you biblical scholars, I know that this wasn't written originally about Jesus. God's referring to calling his people out of Egypt. Remember the Exodus, the Ten Commandments, that whole thing? And so Jesus becomes kind of this archetype. It's weird that in the initiation of the Old Covenant, God calls people out of Egypt. And when he wants to initiate the New Covenant, he wants to call Jesus out of Egypt, that there's a a type there, okay? Some prophecies are multiple in their fulfillments, and this is one of them. Verse 16, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. I just, I don't know. It's just, I don't know what to say about that. Killing two-year-old boys and under. Granted, Bethlehem was small. Might have been 20 to 30 young boys that age, but can you imagine being the mother or the father watching the armed guards come in, pull your kid out, stab him with a sword, cut his head off? All because Herod, who's going to die in a couple years anyway, is paranoid. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. For they are no more, another translation reads. Rachel was one of the matriarchs of the nation of Israel. And this verse, again, refers not just to what's going on then. It refers to the exile to Babylon when Jews were being led captive and taken away. It's the same kind of thing happening here. 19, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up, returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother, But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And this fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. If you look for that verse in the Old Testament, you will not find it. I say this because I don't want you to be stumbling over unnecessary lines in the Christmas story. Matthew, writing here, kind of makes it vague. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. And the best I can do with this verse, and I think it's a fairly good assumption, is that a Nazarene was somebody from way out yonder. Remember remember when... uh, the disciple Philip first heard about Jesus, and he hears that Jesus comes from Nazareth. He says, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? You mean the new Messiah comes from Nazareth? That's crazy. 
Everybody knows nothing good comes out of that town. It's backwater, backwoods, back 40, backward people. And I think that what Matthew is saying is, is that the Messiah, we all knew, was going to be a man of no account. Somebody we wouldn't have expected. Somebody who is the farthest away from royalty you could ever imagine. You think of Isaiah's suffering servants. You know, in Isaiah 52 and 53, he had no beauty that we would esteem him. We considered him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, those kinds of things. And so he's not specific for a reason, because he knows it's not there. He's just kind of giving you a broad idea of, look, the Messiah is going to come out of nowhere. He's a dark horse. He's the horse you wouldn't have bet on. And so they go and they live in Nazareth, which is where they were from. You remember? Joseph, betrothed to Mary, who was with child, had to go register for the tax in Bethlehem, which was his ancestral homeland, because he was of the line of David. So he packs up Mary on a donkey, and they head off to Bethlehem, where they have the whole manger thing happen, right? Angels, shepherds, all that kind of stuff. Then, obviously, at some point, he buys a house or rents a house in Bethlehem because a couple years later, when the wise guys show up, they go to a house, and Jesus is a toddler. I don't know exactly when that happened, but that's probably what happened. And then they go to Egypt. And then they decide, let's go home. (laughs) So they go back to Nazareth. That's why Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> okay. I really wanted to um, go into detail on the Christmas story because I think we're kind of muddled in our thinking. We're not really clear that we ought to be about the real story. We just kind of believe what we hear in the movies and stuff. Fight or flight. Who in this story feels threatened and reacts by wanting to fight. Herod, very good. All right. Here's a harder one. Who in this story may feel threatened and chooses to react by flight? Nope. Nope. Not wise guys, not Joseph. Let's go back. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. This is important. Verse 4. Herod calls a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asks, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they answer right away, in Bethlehem. Why do we not hear about any of the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the ones who gave Herod the right answer, why aren't they going to Bethlehem along with the Magi, or after the Magi. Why? Why would they not go? They know the Messiah coming, not just in their scriptures, which they know very, very well, but it's like general knowledge throughout the empire that this great ruler is supposed to come, and they don't even go to see him. I'm thinking it's because they don't want to see him. They're avoiding Jesus, which is another way of flight. 
maybe you don't get up and run with your legs, but on the inside, you're going, you don't exist. And there's a third way. What's the third way? That would be the Magi. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out, what's the third way? If it's fight or flight, then what's the third way when we feel threatened? And this is what I've come to. The third way is sacrifice. Fight, flight, sacrifice. You're going, what did the wise men sacrifice? Well, a lot of time for one thing. It took months to get there. 900 miles. A lot of money they sacrificed, gold, frankincense, more, paying the cohort of whatever military personnel were accompanying them, their posse. The uncomfortable trip. These are dudes who are living pretty well off compared to most people in those areas. And they, they left to go on this several-month-long camping trip excursion. No bathrooms, no servants, no food you're used to, used to eating. You see, they sacrificed a lot to come and to seek God face-to-face. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, Mike, can you find this anywhere else in the Scriptures? And, and I could, really, I could. thought about Abraham. Abraham is given a son by God, and he's faced with three choices. God says, I want you to kill your son. I want you to sacrifice your son. Abraham could have fought God on that one. He could have taken flight, but no, he was willing to sacrifice his son. We all know the story that God stopped him from sacrificing his son at the last minute. We think about uh, King David, the new anointed king, the archetypes in some ways for Jesus coming. Little boy, shepherd boy, is anointed king. King Saul already in place. King Saul reacts with fight, chucks a spear at David, chases him around the desert looking to kill him. Meanwhile, Jonathan finds a third way. Jonathan is Saul's son. He's supposed to be the next king. What's he do? He's willing to sacrifice his throne because he knows David is God's guy. And let's not leave the women out of it. What about Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus? She's faced with a choice. God has chosen you to be the mother of the Messiah. She could certainly have fought him on that one and not been the mother. Or she could have ignored God and said, no, I'm not even going to pay attention to you. But she goes through a tremendous amount of sacrifice her whole life long because she's the mother of the Christ. Fight, flight, sacrifice. The third way is God's way. I wonder why some of you are in Denver. I think that for some people here, Denver marks a flight from something 
that you did not want to face. You felt threatened, and so you took off. You know, sometimes, again, flight is internal. You can just ignore somebody. (laughs) The holidays are here, folks. Is there any more threatening time of year than the holidays? When you think about your family, it was great to have really close, wonderful, warm family a couple states away. It's great. But holidays come and you all get together. And the holiday dinner table is one of those places where you can see the fight or flight thing take place a lot. We're just not going to talk about that. We're not going to go there. We're going to ignore it. Or we're getting this thing settled once and for all. I don't care if it's a turkey. I don't care if it's getting cold. We're going to do this right now. And then everybody's kind of like sweating and wants to leave and flee. Or other people people want to fight and it gets to be crazier on the holiday dinner table. This really hit me hard this week. I've got a situation, I won't go into details, but I've got a situation where it just so happens there is a person is kind of like on the outskirts of my family who is causing me, my wife, my kids, a tremendous amount of sorrow and grief. Um, actually, I'm really, really pissed off at this person. I mean, I had visions of going into this person's place of work and screaming and calling down hellfire and judgment and indicting all the coworkers for not saying anything and just. I thought, well, you're a Christian pastor. You probably shouldn't do that. So I didn't know what to do because I was so freaking angry. Uh, well, I'll. Okay, so I just leave it alone. And so I have lived my life as if this person didn't exist. What is that, folks? Flight, right? I've chosen the latter because it looks more Christian. But I'm not so content with it inside. I'm talking to all these people that I know, asking for advice. I'm wrestling with the Lord in prayer. I'm going, you know, Lord, it just doesn't feel right. You know, after all, I am a Christian pastor. These are the kind of people I want to come to scum. But this one has really hurt me pretty badly, and I just want to ignore him, pretend like she doesn't exist. And so... I'm wrestling with this, right? And lo and behold, what's the sermon about this week? The third frickin' way. And it finally hits me, because I don't know what the third way is from the booklet. (laughs) I looked it over. It's finally hit me. This is going to cost me something. Sacrifice. I don't know what it looks like yet. Honestly, I am right on the cusp of this. I'm asking the Lord, holidays are coming up, Lord. I might run into this person. I don't know what to do. 
what I know is going to involve some sacrifice. So please help me out. What do you want me to do? What do I have to die to? I got to at least die to control. That much I know. I cannot control the situation. Because fight and flight are both about maintaining some kind of control of the situation. You can intimidate somebody or you can ignore them. And what Jesus is going to ask me to do, I know, is to give up control. Sacrifice that for the very start. I have no idea what it's going to cost me, but it's going to cost me. And I'm thinking, is this what we're all stuck with? Like if you have a situation at work, or there's someone you feel threatened by, and maybe you're fighting that person, maybe you're ignoring that person, Maybe you're fighting or fleeing, or you don't know which. And is God asking you to do something sacrificial? Could God be doing that? It sounds so much like God, I wish it didn't. That's how much I know it's God, because I don't want to do it that much. Or what about, you maybe have a roommate situation. Your roommate's acting in ways that are making you crazy. And you want to take your roommate by the throat and shake him or her and say, start picking up your clothes. I don't want to step on your dirty underwear anymore when I get up to go to the bathroom at night. I was talking to a guy about this and he sent me a little vignette of his life with roommates. I have two housemates. One's an atheist. The other one is bipolar and schizophrenic. Already you're going, flee. Flee. Neither one of them know the Lord. The other night about 12.30 a.m., I hear them begin to argue about the condition of the kitchen, which is a total mess. I am the only one who has cleaned it in three months. I get real tired of doing it myself. They were screaming and yelling till around 1.30 in the morning about this. I was trying to get some sleep, so I told the Lord that I had plans to clean it in the next day. And the Lord said to me, why don't you clean it now? But then you see, I get up really, really early in the morning for work. It's a big problem. I had three choices before me. Ignore it. Go in and argue with them. That would be flight and fight, right? imagine three people in the kitchen at 1.30 in the morning arguing about who's going to do the dishes? That's just so constructive. I don't know what to say. And then the third one was to sacrifice. Well, I got up and I cleaned it and I mopped the floor and got to bed around 2.30 in the morning without saying anything to either one of them. The kitchen has been spotless since I did this. They have kept it this way. The witness of Jesus to them is real. It's just a great story. It's in with the whole idea about the third way. And maybe you've got a problem in your family or you've got a problem with your friends. I'm going to encourage you this Christmas season to look for a third way. And we need to look no farther for a model 
or the one who did it perfectly than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus, as he approached his crucifixion, was certainly tempted to flight. Matthew 26, 39 says, Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus in the garden is praying, Hey, if I can fly out of this thing, bring it on me, God. But not what I want, what you want. And there was also the temptation to fight as he was being arrested by the armed guards. One of his disciples took out a sword in order to fight. And Jesus said this, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? Jesus tempted with flight and fight and gave in to neither. But he took the third way of sacrifice himself. Luke 23 says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. So whether we realize it or not, every time we take communion, we celebrate Jesus showing us the third way. We remember that there's a different way than fighting or fleeing. That we're called the lives of sacrifice, and somehow in God's upside-down world, the sacrifice is what makes everything better. So we're going to take communion tonight to do that. There are going to be three stations, a couple down here, one up there. But today when you take communion, I want you to think about the third way and Jesus being a model for us, especially this coming season, as we're going to be tempted to both fight and flight. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your example. I ask that we would be people who follow you into the third way. We sacrifice ourselves to get what you have to offer us. That we give up controlling things in order for your control to be made known. Help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.